This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It's the dream of many a reader, a vast library stocked with beautiful leather-bound tomes, in all sizes and colors, and inside their stiff covers, pages of sepia-toned vellum with the words of the greatest writers in history, like Austin, Dumas, and Shakespeare. Rare book collections often have these volumes in their own libraries, some behind glass, others in thick vaults. But one book has eluded every reader and collector for over 100 years, and for good reason, because no one can get to it. It had started life as a series of poems written in the 11th and 12th centuries by Persian polymath Omar Khayyam. In the mid-1800s, a poet named Edward Fitzgerald decided to translate these quatrains into a collection called The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Rubiat is Persian, by the way, for quatrain. Fitzgerald's book became quite popular all the way into the 20th century, so much so that English bookstore owner John Stonehouse commissioned a special edition of the collection for his own shop. In 1910, he went to London bookbinders Sangorsky and Sutcliffe, known for their impeccable quality and flair for the dramatic. Stonehouse instructed co-owner Francis Sangorsky to do it and do it well, there is no limit, put what you like into the binding, charge what you like for it. Money, in other words, was no object, because the amount that the final product would bring would make it all worth it. The front and back covers were made of hundreds of layers of leather. 1,000 jewels were inlaid on the front and back within their own settings. Gold tooling adorned the elaborate covers, while end sheets bearing images of peacocks, skulls, and Persian symbols were made for the inside. The designs of these end pages were meant to represent life and death. It was called The Great Omar, and it was the definition of opulence and extravagance. At the time, Stonehouse called it the finest and most remarkable specimen of binding ever designed or produced at any period or in any country. Completed in 1911, it represented the best that Sangorsky and Sutcliffe had to offer. Now, the store that Stonehouse managed, Southerns, put it up for sale at the eye-watering price of £1,000, equivalent to about £120,000 today. But not everyone was taken with the book. Many believe that its design was ostentatious and tacky, and this only made it harder to sell. But then a book dealer named Gabriel Wells stopped into Southerns. He was visiting from New York and offered the shop 800 pounds for the Great Omar. Stonehouse declined the offer and countered at 900 pounds, but they still couldn't come to an agreement. It was soon decided that the Great Omar would go to New York to be sold anyway, where it might find more willing buyers. The book was loaded onto a ship and was sent out. Although it ran into some trouble when U.S. Customs officials required a hefty duty tax to be paid in order for the tome to be released. 
Refusing to pay the fee, the Omar made its way back to London, still unwanted by any buyers or collectors. The bookstore's owner, Henry Cecil, wanted it sold as quickly as possible. He had been kept out of the loop on its creation and demanded that he recoup at least some of the money that had been spent on making it. And so it went up for auction at Sotheby's, where it sold for £405 to Gabriel Wells. It was April of 1912, and the great Omar was loaded onto the next ship headed to its new home of New York City. Sadly, just a few days into the trip, the vessel struck an iceberg and sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. That's right. The gold and jewel-encrusted Rubiat of Omar Khayyam now resides somewhere within the wreckage of the unsinkable Titanic, seemingly lost forever. Many years after the sinking, the plans for the Omar were discovered by Sutcliffe's nephew, Stanley Bray, who had been hired as an apprentice bookbinder. He thought it would be a good idea to remake the book, jewels and all, and spent most of the 1930s cloning the work that his uncle and Sangorsky had done. By the time it was finally finished, though, the Germans were flying over London. Bombs dropped from the sky, sending everyone fleeing. Bray did his best to protect his new great Omar, wrapping it up and putting it in a vault on 4th Street for safekeeping. Well, as it so happened, 4th Street was the first place the Germans bombed. That area was reduced to ash and rubble in an instant. Once the debris had been cleared away sometime later, the vault was located and Bray's Omar was found. The covers looked to be in fine shape. The protective wrapping and the safety of the vault appeared to have saved this second edition from destruction. Unfortunately, looks, as they often are, were deceiving, because as soon as the book was opened, it was clear that the pages and much of the leather had been melted by the heat from the blasts. It seems that no matter how hard Sangorsky and Sutcliffe and Bray tried, a bejeweled version of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam was never meant to exist. Some say the book was cursed. Others, such as Sir John Fortescue, King Edward VII's librarian within Windsor Castle, would call it the most eminent failure, perhaps, that I ever saw. Sought-after and popular books often come with that age-old compliment, I couldn't put it down. But for this book, at least, the opposite has always been true. No one can pick it up. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, 
you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Our favorite movies have a tendency to stick in our brains forever. We incorporate memorable lines into everyday conversations. We shiver every time the music swells during the climax. And we happily press play on our remotes when we need something to make us feel better after a bad day. Whether it's the terrifying two notes of John Williams' Jaws theme, or the way Humphrey Bogart tells Ingrid Berman to get on that plane at the end of Casablanca, the movies that shape our lives are as much a part of us as our DNA. But there's one line that's been uttered in over 400 films and television shows, and that number keeps growing, although it's not really a line of dialogue. It's more of a pained yell. It first appeared in the 1951 western Distant Drums, starring Gary Cooper. In the film, which takes place during the Second Seminole War of 1840, a group of soldiers help get several prisoners to safety by trekking through the Florida Everglades. The sound is heard as the party navigates a swamp, and one of the men is devoured by a hungry alligator. According to the stories, the scream that the character lets out as he's being eaten was recorded by American singer Sheb Woolley. And Woolley went on to appear in a number of high-profile films, including High Noon, The Outlaw Josie Wales, and Hoosiers. But he is perhaps best known for his hit novelty song, The Purple People Eater, released in 1958. What Woolley didn't realize at the time was that his scream would endure well beyond his death in 2003. In fact, it might outlast us all. The recording was cataloged by the studio as Man Getting Bit by an Alligator and He Screams, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It wouldn't gain its common name until after its use in a 1953 film called The Charge at Feather River. This was another Western, one in which a character named Private Wilhelm screamed after being shot in the leg by an arrow. This now iconic moment tied the sound effect to the character, and almost 25 years later, it would gain its much shorter and memorable name, the Wilhelm Scream. But why did it take nearly a quarter of a century for the Wilhelm Scream to catch on? For that, we turn to a man named Ben Burt. Burt was a Hollywood sound designer who only had two films under his belt when he was tapped to join a little science fiction movie called Star Wars in 1977. Unlike other sci-fi films of the past, which relied on electronic sounds to give them a futuristic feel, Burt developed an ear for more natural sound effects. For example, the sound a lightsaber makes is a combination of an idling film projector and the feedback emitted by a broken television. But for one scene in the picture where a stormtrooper falls to his death, 
Bert needed a sound effect that was perfect for the moment, and so he turned to Private Wilhelm's faded scream from the charge at Feather River. The Wilhelm scream became Bert's signature, an indication that he had worked on a film's sound design. You can hear it in the Indiana Jones movies, the Star Wars sequels and prequels, and even 1988's Willow, all of which Bert had had a hand in. But a funny thing happened after Bert first used the scream. It took on a life of its own. Since 1977, the Wilhelm scream has become a staple of the motion picture industry, appearing in hundreds of movies and TV shows like Disney's Toy Story, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man from 2002. It also became something of an Easter egg for film buffs everywhere. In fact, at a 2006 screening of The Charge at Feather River, a large portion of the audience erupted with applause when Private Wilhelm's leg was punctured by the arrow. They weren't happy that he was injured. They were just glad to hear his iconic scream in all its blood-curdling glory. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.